All right, good morning. Before we get started, um, we need to have a little bit of public shaming this morning. It's what we do here. It's, it's not, but it's what we're going to do this morning. So I want to point out both Kevin and Brian this morning. Um, Brian predicted that OSU would lose yesterday. He's pretty much been wrong about that every single game. Um, and Kevin apparently laughed when Notre Dame scored first yesterday. So happy new year to everybody except for Kevin and Brian. All right. Well, like Kevin said, my name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. We're glad you're here. Um, and in case you didn't know, if you're new with us, this will be new to you. If you're not new with us, then um, you're already aware of this. But um, when I preach, I like to give a cultural and historical background of the text that, that we're going through. A lot of it has to do with my academic background, um, but that's just the, the way I like to approach things. And um, Luke is really going to help us with that this morning. Um, he's going to go right up front and give us the historical characters to look at as, as we approach this text. Uh, and, and it would make sense why he's going to do this. He's writing an, an historical account for the Messiah for the purpose of certifying for Theophilus, as he wrote in, in Luke chapter 1, and for us, the things um, which, which we've been taught concerning Jesus of Nazareth. Now, if this were merely a historical account, um, he wouldn't have been required to go into as many details as he does here. Um, but, but he does go into this many details, and, and in doing so, he's thoroughly proving a point for us. Um, and it's a point that's going to take us back to the prophecies of Daniel in the Old Testament. I'm not going to spend too much time going through those prophecies, but I, I do want to hit on some of the details because I, I think it's helpful for us to understand um, how this prophecy in Daniel fits in with what Luke um, is about to write about John the Baptist. So let me read the first two verses of Luke 3, and, and then we're going to look at Daniel 7. So if you want to have that ready as well, um, we'll look at that together. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Traconius, and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So here's the hierarchy. You have Tiberius Caesar, who is the emperor of Rome, and the area that was once ruled by Herod the Great, this tyrant that um, was in, in power when Jesus was born, and, and also the first person who tried to have Jesus killed, um, that territory has now been split into four different territories. You have Pontius Pilate, who was the governor of Judea, uh, and then you have Herod Antipas and his brother Philip, um, who were tetrarchs in Galilee and in Israel. Uh, Iturea, I don't know how to say that, we're going with that though, and Traconius, um, respectively, and Lysanias was the tetrarch of the small principality of Abilene. So don't try to tell me that America is not in the Bible, not just America, but Texas is right there. So I just found it. All right. Now, Tiberius was a notoriously hostile um, emperor specifically toward the Jews. He, he saw the Jews um, as unwilling to participate in the imperial cult, and he saw that as dangerous to the unity of the empire. 
Um, so under his rule, the Jews suffered a great deal. Um, under his rule, the, the high priest um, changed under the, the procurator of Judea four different times. And Caiaphas, who is mentioned here, um, was basically the one who was seen to be sufficiently submissive um, to the rule of the emperor, who would basically just do what he wanted the emperor, uh, what the emperor wanted him to do. Annas, who's mentioned here, was the high priest appointed by Quirinius, who was the governor um, when Jesus was born. Uh, and, and Annas was succeeded by three others before we get to Caiaphas. Uh, and yet we see in this text that there was also a, a bit of a split of power between Caiaphas and Annas. And, and so that points to a bit of religious distress on top of the political distress that the Jews were experiencing. But the timing of all of this was not accidental, and that's going to get to the prophecies of Daniel that I mentioned a few minutes ago. So let's, let's look at Daniel 7 together. Get there. All right. Daniel 7. I'm going to look at, at verses 1 through 8 to begin with. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon... Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of the man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth and was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads and dominion given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. So everybody's clear what he's talking about here, right? All right, well, let's, let's look down to verse 13. We're going to skip over a few things. I want to look at verse 13 and 14 real quick. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one Shall not be that shall not be destroyed. Okay, so Daniel's prophecies are notoriously difficult to decipher. So I'm not going to get into the weeds of all of this right now. I'm simply going to draw some parallels, and we can talk later um, if you want to go into more details. Uh, that conversation will probably end up with me saying I don't know a lot, but we can have that conversation if you want. Uh, the first beast, uh, the lion with eagle's wings, was representative of Babylon. The second was the empire of the Medes and the Persians. The third was Greece, 
and the fourth was Rome. Now, there are reasons that these are known to be um, what, what Daniel's prophecy is referring to, but for now, we'll just stick with the fact that they are. Uh, Daniel was, talking, was taken to Babylon when Jerusalem was captured, um, and, and he likely remained there until the time of his death. Uh, so at that point, when he died, um, if you follow the, the path of Daniel, um, the Persians, the Medes and the Persians had taken rule. Uh, so the empires of, of Greece and Rome that this is referring to um, came well into the future, well after he had already died. Now, why is all of this important? Uh, it's because of verses 13 and 14 here in Daniel 7. The Son of Man mentioned here in Daniel 7 was to come onto the scene and disrupt the rule of this fourth beast. In fact, in the interpretation of this vision, Daniel does give an interpretation. If you look at chapter 7, verses 26 and 27, it says this, But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away. It's talking about this, this fourth beast. To be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So Luke is setting up this scene for us, and Daniel here has already set it up centuries before. In this scene, um, he's, he's laying out in, in Luke chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, he's laying out the full rule of Rome and Jerusalem. So Rome had taken power of the state and of uh, the religion. For all intents and purposes, the high priest was appointed uh, to be obedient and submissive to the emperor. Luke's laying that out for us. He's setting up for us uh, the fulfillment of this prophecy. All right, back to Luke. I'm going to skip over verse 3 for a second, but we, we will come back to that. Uh, it was clear to the Jews um, that the Messiah was going to come. Let's, let's take a look at um, verses 4 through 6. As it is written in the book of the words of, the, of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh flesh shall see the salvation of God. Okay, so, so Daniel had prophesied that this uh, coming of the Messiah would be during the reign of this fourth beast. Uh, Isaiah also prophesied that there would be a forerunner to come before him, crying out in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord. Now there's a cultural context to this as well. Uh, when ancient kings would come into a city, uh, there would be a messenger who would be sent ahead of the king to tell the city to get ready for the coming Hello, hello, hello. Can you hear me? Thanks, Brian. That was helpful. <laughs> so when, when ancient kings would come into a city, there'd be a messenger that was sent ahead to tell the city, get ready for the coming king. And I saw this when I was living abroad. When, when a national leader um, would, would be planning to come to the city. Hello, there we go. All right, so when, when the national leaders where I was would, would be preparing to come into the city, they would they'd let the city know uh, ahead of time, and, and you'd watch 
as the city would change before your eyes, at least the parts that the leader was going to see. Uh, so there'd be construction projects. You'd see uh, they'd be um, paving the roads again if they had enough time. The signage along the roads would start to change and, and become uniform. You'd see uh, new traffic police out on the, the sides of the street making sure that there were no pedestrians jaywalking or any of that. Uh, there was a, a massive change to the city. The city basically wanted to put forth their best foot um, to try to impress this leader that was coming. Um, so so from, um, from Daniel's prophecy here, the, the table was set for the Messiah to come. This was the, the fourth empire. It was the fourth beast. And, and now we see that, that John was coming as this messenger from the prophecy of Isaiah. So all of the pieces were falling into place. One of the things that we see in this passage in, in Isaiah that Luke quotes is that the prophecy actually told of a massive construction project. I once saw a project like this. Um, when we were living in, in the mountains in Asia, uh, we were driving from one city to another. We were actually driving all the way across the country. But um, we passed over this mountain, and we came down into this huge valley. And, and as we were driving through this valley, we looked out the passenger side window, and we started seeing these massive pillars. Uh, I mean, they were, they were like skyscrapers, just all throughout this valley. Um, and we started looking at the signs, and, and as we were driving through the mountains, we noticed that there had been uh, explosions in the mountains to, uh, to kind of tunnel through the mountains. And um, it, was a, it was a massive... Um, construction project, uh, basically, uh, so instead of uh, transversing these mountain passes and then going down and winding through the valleys, they were going to give you a straight shot right through um, on a straight road, a smooth road, um, right through this wilderness. And, and it was an absolutely massive project. In fact, there were signs that said it was scheduled to take place over the next hundred years. So that'll kind of give you an idea of the scale. Um, now, Luke is telling us here that John is announcing the coming of the Messiah. He's the messenger in the wilderness, and he's affirming that it is at this time when every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. But what we'll soon find out is that this, this massive construction project, this, this massive public's work project would not be undertaken by those who are receiving Jesus, but by Jesus himself. Jesus was coming to do all of this for us that we may see the salvation of God. Uh, let me put it like this. Expecting mankind to do what Isaiah was talking about would be like a kid with a Tonka truck trying to complete the project that I just mentioned a few minutes ago. The gap between Isaiah's vision and the completion of the vision by human means would be laughable if it weren't so tragic. And every time we try to earn something before God, it's like we're getting out that Tonka truck again and thinking we're actually doing something. The valley has been filled, and the mountains and hills have been made low. The crooked is straight, and the rough places have been leveled. But none of it has been our doing, which is why it's called the salvation of God. He did it all. And that gets us back to verse 3. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of 
of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is what it meant when John was coming to prepare the way of the Lord. This is what it meant to be the messenger who was calling out to the city that the king was coming. He's telling them how to prepare for his arrival. And here's how this connects to what I just said. Repentance on its own, our act of repentance on its own does not have the power to save us. Only Jesus does. On the other hand, without repentance, if we remain in our stubbornness, there is no forgiveness of sin. So the two go hand in hand, but we have to be careful how we talk about this. Uh, John wasn't out there thinking he was saving people by telling them to repent or that they were saving themselves by repenting of sin. He was crying out for their repentance so that they may be saved by the blood of the one of whom he was unworthy to untie his sandals. Jesus was going to do the work. John was calling people to stop trying to do in vain what Jesus alone could do. He was talking to deeply religious people who were thinking they were being saved by their religiosity. We're in the middle of Bible Belt America, so I'm going to say this as clearly as I can. The sinner's prayer doesn't save anyone. Walking an aisle doesn't save anyone. Going to church every week doesn't save anyone. Daily devotions don't save anyone. Even baptism doesn't save anyone. And the only repentance that does save anyone is the one that says, no one is Lord but Jesus, and I will no longer seek life anywhere but him. Jesus called out in Mark 1.15 for us to repent and believe in the gospel. It's not the repentance itself that saves. It's the, the turning away from what we were believing and turning to him alone. But for the Jews at that time, their expectation of salvation was much different than what John was preaching. They, they were thinking of political salvation. Their ideas were not much different than when, when Donald Trump stood up a few weeks ago and declared that he was saving Christianity. For the Jews, it was about regaining autonomy and authority. It was about living their lives their way in free, uh, free from external oppression and rule. It was about doing away with their political opponents. John's message was a swift transition away from that mentality. And we'll see that explicitly in the next few verses. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire." All right, this is, this is some harsh language, and, and it, it seems, it can be really uncomfortable for us, but I, I want to highlight something real quick. Uh, I'm going to read a quote from a book called The Life and Times of Jesus and Messiah. You've, you've heard me quote from this book before, um, but it says this, it deserves notice that the special sin with which the house of Annas, Annas the high priest here, is charged is that of whispering or hissing like vipers which seems to refer to private influence 
on the judges in their administration of justice, whereby morals were corrupted, judgment perverted, and the Shekinah withdrawn from Israel. The Shekinah is referring to the glory of God that, that um, came down in the temple. So for the crowds that were coming out to see John, there was, there was kind of a, a two-sided cry. Uh, one, they were crying for the advent of the kingdom of the Messiah, which would forever um, establish the power and reign of Israel and, and would destroy their enemies. Uh, the other cry was a cry for freedom from these spiritually oppressive and corrupt religious leaders. Uh, there was a desire for all kinds of liberation, and many saw John out in the wilderness as a glimmer of hope. Maybe, just maybe, he was this Messiah who was going to bring freedom from the, these, this captivation to these systems. I don't believe it's by accident that Luke included this phrase, brood of vipers, in the same passage that he's talking about Annas. I think there's a connection there. So for John to use this language would have had a especially sharp edge. When, when the people were already frustrated with, with Annas, the high priest, but he's telling them, no, 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 you're a brood of vipers just like him. He, he, see, he isn't rejecting their desire to be saved. He's instead redirecting the meaning and means of the salvation. It wasn't what they were thinking. Their thinking was wrong. He, and he's rejecting the type of repentance that they were willing to do. In other words, he, John was connecting the crowds to Annas with his reference to vipers. He's tying them to corrupt morals, perverted judgment, and the withdrawal of the Shekinah glory of God from Israel. He's tying them to injustice. And this is something you see all throughout Scripture. Where the leaders of Israel go, the people follow. All through the Old Testament, when you see, you see the people follow the ways of the kings of their time. When there were good kings, the people would turn to the Lord. They would tear down the idols. But when there were evil kings, the people would go deeper and deeper into injustice and to the marginalization of oppressed people. And they would, they would worship the gods of the nations and erect idols and Asherah poles, and they would bow to Baals and, and all kinds of things. But, but see, John isn't letting anybody off the hook here just because the leaders went astray. He's implicating the people as well. He's telling them that they become just like the leaders that they hate. They followed them into corruption, perversion, and injustice. But he tells them what to do next. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, you can tell me all day long about your theology. They could have told you until they were blue in the face about their theology and the law and, and all of these things. And, and many of them did. And we're going to see that as we go through Luke. You can tell me day and night about how much you love Jesus. You can speak for days about the grace and mercy of God. But if there is no change in your life, that's not repentance. Even if your life looks incredibly pious, if you have no love for your neighbor and you're not willing to turn from your own pursuits to bring yourself in line with the will of God, that's not repentance. Talk of repentance is cheap and is not the type of repentance that is required for salvation. True repentance bears fruit because it turns from our own strength to the strength of the one from where the fruit comes. The prophet Amos wrote of this in, in Amos chapter 5. Verse 12, it says this, 
For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. And he continues in verses 20 through 24. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feast, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I'll not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. God is calling the people of Israel to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. John the Baptist here is just continuing that message. He's telling the crowds that they have been discipled well by Annas and the other religious leaders. They were just like them. And it was of that vain religiosity that he was telling them to repent. He was pleading with them to repent from self-reliance and self-righteousness and using religion as a cover for all sorts of underhanded evil and to turn to God instead. God was telling them to repent of putting their hope in religion. Religiosity could not and would not save them. And then John continues to break down their false ideas. They thought that being descended from Abraham, that being of the bloodline of Abraham, would, would make, mean uh, men, that they were somehow better. They, brought into the, they bought into the idea that they were superior because of their family line, because of their origin. They, they thought that God favored them over the rest of the world because of the family that they were bought in, that they were born into. And John dashes that idea against the rocks. He says, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to, uh, from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. He didn't need their bloodline. We would do well to listen to this because honestly, often American Christianity feels a lot like what John was pushing back against with the crowds here. It often seems like American Christians think that the world needs us to go save them. We talk with great urgency about going to the heathen who need us to tell them about Jesus, and John shattered that idea. See, God didn't need ethnic Israel. He chose to allow them to be a conduit of God's glory to the nations. Likewise, God doesn't need America, yet he has chosen in his grace and mercy to allow American Christians to be a part of what he is already doing in the world. I think we often think far too highly of ourselves. And I say that, I know that we do that because I do too, and I'm a product of the American church, which is where this idea comes from that has been ingrained in me. We have to stop seeing ourselves as necessary parts of God's plan, either for ourselves or for others. It's by grace alone. And it comes not when we center ourselves and think of ourselves as indispensable, but when we repent of exactly that. It is grace that we receive when we humble ourselves and confess that Jesus is Lord and we need him, not the other way around. 
John made it clear for him, for them, they could still repent. There's still a chance for them to be saved, for them to turn from their vain religiosity and self-righteousness, but judgment was not far from them. The axe had been lifted above this tree that had been found rotten, and that axe was about to fall. But repentance required far more than just coming out and getting baptized in the waters of the Jordan. And for us, it requires more than just being a faithful churchgoer. What kind of repentance then does God desire? And the crowds asked him, what what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. In other words, what what should we do? Love your neighbor like you love yourself. In doing this, you show that you know God and love God because God is love. What does that look like practically? If you can meet somebody's need, do it. Are you an authority over someone? Treat them justly and fairly. Don't show partiality. Don't be overcome by greed. Do not do harm to people. Live lives of integrity, even when the world around you expects you to. But be careful. This is the fruit of repentance. This is not salvation. Okay? In the words of the prophet Micah, Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. These things are the fruit of repentance. They are what comes out when we are filled with Jesus. But again, our repentance doesn't save us. Only Jesus does. And that gets us to the next section here. As the people were in expectation and were all questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Uh, Again, just turning from your sins won't cut it. We need the answer to this question. Who is the Christ? Who is the Messiah? Who's the Savior that is to come? Who can save us from our sins? In other words, when we in repentance turn from our sins, to whom do we turn? That's the question the crowds want to know. And while they were still thinking politically, John answered powerfully. No, John was not the Christ. He was just there to announce that the King was coming. He was there to prepare the way. He basically basically told him, y'all aren't ready. Y'all aren't ready for Jesus. He's not going to be who you think he is. His baptism is something altogether different. His baptism will destroy your old self and purify you as silver is purified in fire. And his baptism would clear out the chaff. It would separate the sheep and the goats. It would melt away the dross. The baptism of Jesus would be the means by which Jesus presents his bride as holy and blameless before God. See, John just redefined the salvation that the Messiah would bring. But it was the salvation the Messiah was always going to bring. 
The Messiah would come not to give power to the Jews, but to save all who would repent of trying to build their own kingdoms and would instead willingly come into his kingdom and submit to him as king. It'd be salvation for those who would die to this world just as Jesus died so that we would be raised with him and enjoy citizenship in his eternal kingdom. In his words, for whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And that's exactly what we see here at the end of this passage. We see what that shift in citizenship, what this repentance means. So with many other exhortations, he, John, preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Uh, there's a whole sermon in these three verses. Uh, there's, there's so much to unpack here. Um, but let me just say this. Contrary to what is commonly communicated, the gospel is not only about the salvation of our souls. Just as he did in the Old Testament, God cares about justice and hates injustice. The gospel of which we speak is the gospel of the kingdom. It is the good news that includes the fact that one day all injustice will be no more. And it's that gospel that compels us to plead with God as Jesus did. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's also the gospel and the assurance of our life that is hidden with Christ in God that gives us freedom to speak out against injustice, even with great cost to ourselves. And that's what John did. He spoke truth to power, not just for the sake of speaking truth to power, but as a voice against injustice. Herod Antipas was wicked, just like his father Herod the Great. In fact, he would be the one that would eventually bring Jesus into his courts for entertainment. He wanted Jesus to do a miracle as he was on trial um, to be crucified. And in this instance here, John spoke out about him taking his brother's wife as his own. See, John's message didn't change, no matter who he spoke to. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And he called Herod to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He's calling Herod to come in line with the kingdom of God, to himself submit as a citizen of the kingdom that is ruled by the king of kings. But to Herod, this message carried the odor of death, and he refused to lay down himself, to lose his life that he might find it in Jesus. To him, he had far too much to lose. So instead of repenting, instead of submitting to the king of kings, he chose to take John's life and just wasn't one more miscarriage of justice. See, Jesus' yoke is light, but it's exclusive. You don't get to straddle the line, half in the kingdom of God, half in the kingdoms of this world. John's story makes that painfully clear for us. And his message was this, Jesus is better than your power. Jesus is better than your riches. Jesus is better than your religion. 
And although none of us is fit to untie his sandals, he welcomes us to rule and reign with him forever. And to go back to the prophecy of Isaiah, he leveled the ground and straightened the path and actually came all the way to where we are. My wife and I were talking about this uh, just a couple of days ago. Uh, I think too often we have a theology that starts with Genesis 3 with the fall where we're trying to figure out our way back to God instead of realizing that we were created in Genesis 1 in the image of God and God is coming back to restore us to himself, to reconcile us to himself. As Luke put it in Acts 17, 26, and 27, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. Jesus came to us. He came to find us and his offer for us is life to the fullest. So in the words of Joshua in the Old Testament, choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord because it's so much better in his kingdom, incomparably better. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you for your word that you've given to us. Thank you that John was faithful to point to Jesus. I pray that our lives would do the same. Father, I pray that we would repent of our, of our, our religiosity, of even our good works done in our own strength. I pray that we would repent of trying to build our own kingdoms, of trying to do things our way. Father, I pray that we would turn to Jesus, that we would know the life that he offers. Father, that we would understand the reality that eternal life is to know Jesus and the one who, is sent, who he was sent by. Father, I pray that we would know him deeply and that our lives would be transformed and we would bear fruit in keeping with repentance and that that repentance would be ongoing and we would um, be laying aside every day the sin that so easily entangles and we would look to Jesus who is the author and perfecter of our faith even as he began a good work in us that he will carry it to completion. Father, let us believe that and trust that it's in him that that is possible, not in our own strength. Father, we thank you that he came to us to rescue us. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.